0: Welcome again to Seven Mile Road. Really happy that you're you're here today. This morning as we start, I want to open up with a question this week that I heard a pastor ask his congregation. Um, And it's a question that if you think on too long uh, without remembering the overwhelming flood of the grace of Christ that has covered our sins, it can be a damning question. It can be a condemning question. Right? Consider for a moment... We won't spend too long here, but consider for a moment, think back to yourself, don't say anything out loud, think back to yourself, what is the absolute worst, most awful, most shameful thing you've ever done in your life, right? Whether it's out of anger, whether it was out of cowardice or complacency or deception or compromise, perhaps it was something sexual or Perhaps it's an addiction or something else, right? And as, as you think of that, as you let that sort of settle in, it, you sort of feel the weight of that sitting on your shoulder. Right? As you consider the worst thing you've ever done in your life, without even being there, even if you've received forgiveness from Jesus for it, right? just thinking of it makes you feel tense. Right? It takes you back to memories and you feel the weight of that thing consider if, if we said that that most awful thing that you've recalled that you've done, what if I said that there is something even worse that you have done? It's raining outside, and so you're probably thinking this is not going to be a very happy sermon for today. I've already brought the room down quite a bit. But consider, what if you've committed a sin so vile, So awful, more damning to your soul. And what's worse, what if this whole room has done it? All of us. That this sin could be the root that blossoms into a thousand other sins. Right? A sin that we don't often feel guilt about or one that we don't even really know is there. Mark's Gospel today, as Amy read for us, shows us that that sin is that of unbelief, right? Unbelief in what? Unbelief in receiving who Jesus is, the Son of God who has come to redeem humanity, right? It was this sin. If you think all the way back to Genesis 3, it was this sin that was the first sin ever and that sent the entire world into ruin when Adam and Eve refused to believe what God was saying. Right? They didn't believe that God was enough and that He was for them. Right? So in unbelief and in rebellion, they acted against God, chose for themselves what they thought was good and right, and all of humanity, all of us, we fell into sin. Right? If you just consider our world, our, our communities, right? perhaps even here, our city, in this room right now, people everywhere... Right? including perhaps some of us, may feel, with good reason, that we are good people. Right? That we're not all that bad because we don't do all of the awful things that some other people do. Right? We can convince ourselves that we are different. That we don't seem so awful because of what we don't do. But the great irony is this, as Mark shows us. The irony is that it is exactly because of what we have not done that makes us guilty before God, that we would not believe in Christ Jesus, who is God Himself. And so, as you hear from the Gospel of Mark today, consider with me the possible hardness of our hearts this morning. That You could hear of Jesus' Gospel even this morning, of His love and His power, and still refuse to believe right? Uh, if you're tempted, if, if you're a Christian and you feel like this grave warning of unbelief is only for those people who don't know Jesus, take heed because these six verses of Mark that we'll listen to today actually take place among those who know Jesus the most, right? Those who really know Jesus. Hear these words from a preacher who's really affected my heart over the past few months named J.C. Ryle as he reflects on our passage today as Jesus comes back into His hometown of Nazareth. He says this, Never had any place on earth such privileges as Nazareth. For thirty years the Son of God resided in this town and to and fro in its streets. For thirty years He walked with God before the eyes of its inhabitants, living a blameless, perfect life. But it was all lost on them. They were not ready to believe the gospel when the Lord came among them and taught in their synagogue. They would not believe the one whose face they knew so well. So this morning, lest any of us think that this word is for someone else, all of us have great reason to take notice this morning. So turn your Bibles to Mark 6. It will be in the passage that Amy read for us. It's on page 841 in the Bibles in front of you. And as you turn there, let me pray for us asking for help as we consider God's holy word this morning our lord we need your help and assistance this morning to believe surrounding our world and penetrating our hearts our reasons and questions that keep us from you we need your spirit to illuminate this text to our hearts our god we pray that we might see the gospel of christ jesus as beautiful as precious. If we've never heard of this Gospel before, we pray that it would shock us, that it would sound like good news, that in our unbelief that You would show mercy and grace, we pray help us this morning to remember that Your words to us are not meant to destroy us, but it is meant to give us life and joy, that it is in gracious, abundant love that You pursue us this morning. And so would you help us, our Lord, and soften our hearts to believe in Christ we pray. Amen. Right, so as we venture into Mark 6, here's here's sort of the big picture of what I want us to hear Mark telling us. Mark wants us. He wants to urge us to the great gain of faith in Christ and warn us of the great tragedy of unbelief in Christ. Right? He wants to urge us to the great gain of Christ and at the same time warn us of the great tragedy of unbelief in Christ. And sort of give us a better handle of how to consider these six verses, we'll split them up in two. To give us a better handle, we'll first consider the first three verses, how the hometown responds to Jesus, and then second, we'll consider verses 4-6, to six, how Jesus responds to His hometown. So beginning with chapter 6, verse 1, it says, he went away from there, right? Where was there? It was Capernaum, right? This place he's been doing ministry in, and for weeks we had been seeing Jesus knock it out of the park, right? If you've been watching the finals, you you know that when Steph Curry goes to the three-point line, he's draining threes, he's knocking it down, and so that's that's what Jesus is doing. You know it's going to be automatic and successful, right? That's the kind of effect his ministry is having these days. Right? What have we seen? We've seen wind and water literally under His control. We've seen people who are possessed by demons and who are riddled with disease set free and healed. We have seen a young girl who has died and has now literally been brought back to life. Right? We see that wonderful, majestic, glorious ministry of Jesus, but all of it will drastically change as it continues to say that He went away from there and came to His hometown and His disciples followed Him. It's Jesus' homecoming. Right? He's coming back. And you would imagine that with all the success, with all the popularity that He's been gaining, that they'll have a sign up that says the pride of Nazareth. Right? Welcome home, Jesus that they would be excited that he's coming, that the mayor would give, give him the keys of the city, right? that the town would be thrilled that this hometown boy has been making a name for himself, and now he's coming back home to the streets of Nazareth. right? That's what we would expect. Jesus is coming home. But we know the Scriptures. There's always a turn, right? If, if people find you impressive... You know that if, you've, if, if you're out of, from out of town and you have lived somewhere else for a while, you know that the worst thing that could possibly happen is for your new friends to meet your old friends, right? The people that you grew up with. You know that that'll reveal sort of a side to you that you don't want people to know. And so as Jesus comes into Nazareth, it's that kind of a, a feeling, right? Right? If you're like me, I'm a part of a group text with a few friends I grew up with, and about 98% of the texts that we send are purely insults hurled at one another, right? It's just knock after knock, and we know what it was like to grow up with one another. We know, we know the weaknesses and, and stupidities and all the quirks and oddities that we grew up with. That's what it's like when you go to your hometown or you talk with old friends, right? And so coming home isn't always pleasant. And so in Nazareth, there is a suspicion from his hometown of this kid Jesus, right, who left home some time ago as now and now is coming back home into the synagogue, perhaps the same synagogue where he actually grew up going to, and now he's come to teach. Right? He has this opportunity to now teach. Imagine the scene, his hometown family and friends seated in the synagogue, and Jesus comes down the middle aisle to give a message. Perhaps they're telling one another. Listen, we're not even sure if Jesus is a great speaker, but we've got to give Him a chance. We've got to encourage Him because He's just sort of starting along this whole thing, right? The social media nerds have their phones out and they're hashtagging a million hashtags and sending out a million photos that Jesus, the hometown kid, is coming back home, right? All of these people seated there, they're expecting something safe, something ordinary, nothing special or great. And so as Jesus comes down the aisle, walking, and gets to the front, how do they respond to Jesus as He teaches? Verse 2 reads, And on the Sabbath He began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard Him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by His hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and, and the brother of James, and Joseph and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? Right? If you notice, Mark actually tells us nothing about what Jesus actually taught. There are other portions of the Gospel that give us more insight into the things that Jesus has said. But today, in this synagogue, Mark has only interest in one thing. And that is to show us the response of the people. Right? There is absolute astonishment from those who heard from Jesus. And their astonishment isn't what we've probably seen before in Jesus. It's not a, wow. Right? It's sort of a, aha huh Or a what? That doesn't make sense. Their astonishment is wonder. Because after all, Nazareth is a small town. Right? It's a nobody town, maybe 300 people or so, just a little bit more than when we gather here on Sundays. It's not big. No one special comes out of there, and it's, there's this broad perception of Nazareth that someone later says in the Gospel of John that nothing good can come out of Nazareth. That Jesus could be anything more than ordinary, like one of them, is a, is a crazy thought, right? That, that's not possible. Even his name, Jesus, right? It's sort, if someone was named Jesus today and pronounced that way, it would feel kind of awkward. But back then, that was actually a very common name. It's like being named John or being named Bill, right? It's a common name. There's nothing special or regal or majestic about that name. It's just ordinary. It's just Bill, right? If you were to introduce Bill to someone, you'd say, yeah, this is Bill. You know, he's cool. He thinks he's the Messiah." But, but he's cool. He likes basketball. It's kind of weird, right? It, it's not normal. He thinks he's the who? I mean, these people know the language, right, of who the Messiah is. And so it makes you pause. It makes it sound kind of weird. And you might think young Billy is kind of off or young Jesus is a bit off, right? But one of the interesting things that this passage shows us is that his hometown right, Nazareth, where he grew up, what he's saying, they're not actually put off by what he's saying. They're actually impressed by what he says. They actually don't doubt his wisdom or the miraculous and wonderful things that he's done, right? Because it says, they ask, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? They call what he's saying wise. They say the great works that he's doing are mighty. But their, their, their confusion is, how is he, right, this young man, this young Jesus from Nazareth behind all of these things, right, they were trying to reconcile what they knew of him growing up with what they've been hearing of him to now what he's actually telling them face to face, And verse 3 gives us more insight into what they actually knew of Jesus. It says, Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? Jesus is the the boy that grew up on the block. Right? In this small town of Nazareth, they knew his family well. They would walk by by his house on the way to the market, he crawled on the floor. Right? Played in the streets. Learned how to be a carpenter. Right? They knew Jesus. And if you notice, they point out he was a carpenter. And Mark, in mentioning this, it was not meaning to demean Jesus, because if you were a carpenter or you were in manual labor, it was actually a common trade in those days. But it's because he seemed so common that they couldn't understand how this carpenter grow up in their town and is now saying these things and doing these spectacular works. And notice that they call him who? Not just a carpenter, but the son of Mary. Not the son of Joseph. Right? And if you're sort of familiar with those times, in those days to call someone by the name of their mother was actually an insult. Right? Commentators actually say one of the reasons this might be included is because... Mark is trying to highlight the scandal of Jesus' birth, right? The possibility that these rumors are spreading, that Jesus actually came into the world before his mother was even married, right? That that he was born into scandal. They were calling her names and the family was in turmoil. And so to identify Jesus as the son of Mary is to amplify that not only is Jesus ordinary, But coming into the world, his own family is mired in scandal. How could it be that he is anything more than just ordinary, if not worse? I think of this. The great obstacle of these people to believe in Jesus was not in his unwillingness to come down to them face to face, right? But in the unwillingness of their own hearts to accept the God who has condescended to them, who has come down, made himself low in the person of a carpenter, in the son of Mary. Right, Jesus, God himself, has identified so closely with humanity to behold him that in this moment, in the synagogue, their eyes are looking into the very eyes of God. As we read this passage, the humanity of Jesus Right, that he took on human flesh, it should blow us away. Right, Of all the towns in the world, he came into unimpressive Nazareth. Of all the families in the world, he came and was born into one that didn't seem all that spectacular by any stretch of any imagination. Right? Of all of the vocations in the world, he came and chose to work in manual labor. Right, He sweat. He had a sore back. He would probably cut up his hands after a day of work. He didn't come, as you might expect, in pomp and in royalty with chariots and with trumpets blasting. He came lowly into a manger and into an unimpressive town and worked as a carpenter. I remember, some of you know me a few years ago, you know, just uh, recently after getting married at that time, I remember the first time I put on my tool belt and was going out for my first day of working in construction, right? I was excited. I had, you know, a brand new drill and a brand new toolbox. I thought I was all slick and macho and manly. I was ready to go out and build, right? We got to the job site at 6.30, and I was just eager to get this work done. I remember being excited and just a little bit of time into it, feeling like, man, when is lunch coming? Like this, and it was only an hour. It's only—I barely opened my toolbox, right? It was—it was hard, arduous work. You felt just tired after it. And this Jesus, right? Who reigned in heaven, who has made heaven and earth and all that's in it, broke his back and toiled. He worked with wood and stone, right? With vices and chisels. Could you imagine a table built by Jesus? I mean, how perfect would that have been, right? But the thing is, when he walked into his father Joseph's wood shop, and he asked, hey, what's that saw for, or what's that hammer for? He, he wasn't pretending not to know. Right? It was actually a genuine question. Right? He is God, but Jesus, we see the humanity here, that he was actually growing up, both in stature as well as in knowledge. Right, young kids, perhaps some of your kids are growing up learning English and math. Right, he, he didn't just grow up knowing addition and knowing Hebrew and all of these things. He was actually growing as we would, as a real person. I mean, such humility. Right, such love that God would bring himself so very low to us. He who, as we've even read just a moment ago, He who was rich became poor for our sake, that we might know Him. Right? And yet, in all of that, we see here today the people of Nazareth cannot believe in Him and cannot see what great thing He has done. They refuse to believe that Christ Jesus is the Messiah who has come to earth. Not because they do not know Him, but the opposite. It's because they knew him all too well, right? But as we think of that, isn't this the same obstacle of familiarity that Nazareth had with Jesus that many of us may also have, that we know of Jesus all too well, right? Some of you might be in medicine and work with drugs and prescriptions and We know that certain drugs and certain medications work this way, right? That a small strain of the disease is put into the dosage that you would take so that your body can fight off that disease, right? In a small dose. It builds immunity to that. And the disease is fought off. This is what happens to so many of us who profess faith in Jesus, right? That we have a familiarity with Jesus. We get just enough of a dosage of Him we are immune to Him. That we, in a sense, are inoculated to the Gospel, to Jesus, because of a mere acquaintance with Him. Right? We grew up hearing about Him. He's in entertainment. He's on the news. He's pro- probably on Christian TV and Christian radio. We've made fishes and bumper stickers and pamphlets. Right? Jesus, whether our perceptions are right or not, can be Oh, so a familiar name and person to us. Right, parents, if I can just speak to you for a moment. You cannot save your kids to faith in Christ. Only God can do that. And thank the Lord that only God can do that. And yet God has given you the task of parenting and presenting them with Jesus. Right, showing them the gospel. But I was reminded this week, one of the most detrimental things that we can do for our kids is to give them a superficial religious experience with Jesus. A half-baked, right, cursory glance, a quick nod to Jesus that is limited to an evening ritual or a Sunday morning. Right, a form of Christianity that is not filled with a real and true knowledge of Christ, but instead is, is, is shaped by Christian culture that can mi- be mistaken for real faith one in which we do not model for them what great a treasure Jesus is to us, where we do not confess our sins, where we do not plead for forgiveness even from them, our kids, to celebrate and extend grace to them and to others, to pursue holy living, to be generous and to tell others about who Jesus is. I've spoken with many of you, you've spoken with each other, probably going through the gospel-centered parent, you know how hard it is to do some of this work, right? But can I tell you, there are many things, even as we consider parenthood, that make me anxious about raising, protecting, providing for a child, many things, and perhaps you feel that as well, but to consider that my child or your child would not confess faith in Christ, is perhaps the most awful thought that I could have about them. Right? And so as we trust God that He will accomplish in their heart earnest and true salvation, in all of our righteous desires, lest let's give them Jesus instead of just giving them something manufactured. Right? Give them a picture of faith in Christ that is similar to what Paul says in Philippians. Though imperfect and flawed, that whatever gain I had, I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Let us be careful, Seven Mile Road, to not inoculate our children against the true joy of knowing Christ by simply making them religious children. And so as Jesus speaks this morning in the synagogue, He is questioned, and His hometown is offended. Right, Jesus surrounded by scribes and rabbis and learned people, he seems awfully unqualified to speak with such wisdom, right, and authority. That this ordinary common Nazarene would come and claim anything more than to be a carpenter is unconceivable, right? This group of people at the synagogue, they weren't expecting the Messiah to be this way. And so what's their response? Right? What's their response? It's astonishment. Confusion, offense, but ultimately in all of that, their response to Jesus is rejection. Right? It is unbelief in the Son of God. So how will Jesus now, being rejected by Nazareth, respond to His hometown of Nazareth? Verse 4 says this, And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. Right? This phrase that Jesus just spoke, it's a familiar saying in those days and has been said before, but it's sort of a familiar saying that we might know. This this saying of familiarity breeds contempt. Right? We've heard that saying before that when you know someone, you know, it's hard to actually not think the worst of them. Right? It is an absolute wonder. That those who are closest to Jesus, who know Him most well, His hometown, His relatives, His household, receive Him not with honor, but with offense and outright rejection. Right? Think again. What a gift, what a privilege it is for Nazareth that the Son of God would grow up in their town. Right? They, more than anyone else, should have believed in Him. Right? if they only sought to know and realize who He was, if they, if they inquired, if they thought back, if they watched His life, they would know that He came from the lineage of King David. Right? That angels and shepherds and wise men were all around and present when He was born and that all of the events that have happened have proved Him to be the long-awaited Messiah. He's actually the one that they've been waiting for. Right? If they looked closer, they would have noticed that this growing child was very different from all the other growing children. Right? They would have noticed that he lived as a perfect child, as a sinless teenager. Right? They would have noticed if they saw a sinless teenager walking around, right? They would have heard that John the Baptist had proclaimed that he was the Lamb of God, takes away the sin of the world. As the famous preacher Charles Spurgeon has said of these Nazarenes, they were in the right place to find evidence if they had cared for it. But no, with the candle before them, they shut their eyes, or rather, in broad noonday, they groped for the wall like blind men because they were not resolved to see. Right As the people of Nazareth sit before Jesus on this day in the synagogue, as they watch Him, the light of the world is beaming as bright as the sun, and yet their eyes are shut. The voice that has calmed the storms and the winds and has silenced the demons now speaks before them today, yet their ears, they're closed. Right, as Jesus faces this rejection, verse 5 says, and he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. It probably makes you laugh a little bit, right, that healing just a few sick people is a slow day for Jesus, right? I, I just did that, and that's, there's no mighty work there, and he goes on. But this, does, this verse does actually make you wonder, right? Why can't Jesus do a mighty work here, right? That's the immediate question that comes up. Right? When you look at this, this scene, the events of this scene, they're very unimpressive compared to the verses that we've seen before and the verses that we'll see. There's nothing really wonderful happening here that great crowds are marveled in other verses of what great works he's doing. Right? So why does his power and ability seem to suddenly be diminished here in his hometown? Right? Surely there were people there who needed relief deliverance from their pains, there must have been faces that he himself saw and recognized growing up that needed him, relatives and friends that he grew up with, who heard the power that Jesus had, and yet he could do no mighty work for them. And I'd suggest that Jesus' inability to do a work is actually not about his inability at all, but instead about the unbelief of the people to believe in him. Right? As much as Jesus has healed in the scriptures. Right? He's done it over and over and over again. The purpose of Jesus was not to merely start a healing ministry. Right? To get a network you know, syndicated show. Or to start some campaign. If you remember back to Mark 1.15, when Jesus starts his ministry, what was his purpose? To save people, not just from their physical sicknesses, but from their spiritual An eternal sickness that could save not just their bodies, but that could save their souls, right? It was so that he could bring the gospel to bear and so that people might repent. That's what he came for. And so what a misfortune that their unbelief has kept them from a mighty work this day. Right. Imagine what Christ Jesus... Imagine the great work that could have happened that day if they had only believed, if the presence of faith was in their hearts. And so as Jesus has come to His hometown and has preached to those who should have believed more than anyone else, this verse is a stunner. See how He responds to them. Right? Verse 6 says, And He, Jesus marveled because of their unbelief. Jesus marveled. Until this point, we've heard over and over again of how the crowds would marvel and were astonished at Jesus. And now, it's turned. It is Jesus who are marveled by the people. How could this be? Right? Jesus, creator of the world and of us and of these people, He marvels. Right? There are only two instances in the Scriptures. Right? If you you survey the Scriptures, there's only two instances when Jesus marvels. One of them is here when Nazareth does not believe. The other is in Luke 7, when a centurion, a man on on the outside, a Gentile Roman soldier, a man who should have no shot to believe in Jesus, believes... Right? And he believes in such a way that Jesus says to the crowds, I tell you, not even Israel, in all of Israel, have I found such faith. And he marvels. Right? So it seems that the one thing that causes the Savior to, mad, uh, to marvel at humanity, at us, regards the matters of faith and of belief. In one instance with the centurion, Jesus marvels at those who believe when it is not expected that they should believe. And in this instance in Nazareth, He marvels at those who disbelieve when there is every reason to believe. Right, dear friends, I need us to feel the, the significance of who Jesus is. This emotion that He is feeling. He is the Son of God. He existed eternally. He has the power to create life and galaxies. Right? He's he's seen it all. He has complete control over everything you see and touch. That this Jesus should marvel, should be surprised, astonished at whatever thing. Right? It should cause our hearts much wonder and much pause. As, as Spurgeon says again, he says that Jesus, that Jesus should marvel at faith. Either at the existence of it or the absence of it should give us great pause. It should be frequently thought upon and always estimated at the highest rate. The question, have you believed? No man has ever asked a weightier question than that. Right? Listen, Jesus is not surprised when you fall and when you sin and when you struggle in life. Right? He does not marvel when your life is hard and when money is tight and relationships are broken. The, cha- the changes of culture, the changes in government, right? the shifts in world affairs, the threats of widespread epidemics and of disease and calamities. None of these things marvel or astonish Jesus. Except one thing, Jesus marvels when he has come to you and has revealed himself to you and you do not believe. That's when he marvels. Hear him ask, what more could I do to leave heaven and to leave earth, to become like you, to identify you with you so closely on the ground so that you might know me? What more could I do? And so as Jesus marvels at those who have rejected Him in His own town, could it be that He also marvels at our unbelief today? For both the Christian here today as well as those who don't know and trust in Jesus, we both lack faith to believe. Right here, this gospel today, not as harsh or as condemnation, but as good news and as restoration. That's what Jesus desires to give us today. And so to you, Christian, dear brother, dear sister in Christ, though we believe in Jesus, we know that unbelief is a familiar and frequent foe to our hearts. Right, Though we profess that God is for us, that He loves us, that He will provide for us, that His grace is sufficient for us. We know the doubt that, and, and the questions that creep up in our hearts that God might be our enemy, that He's against us. When we find ourselves in trouble and in pain and in confusion, right? when our families and our relationships are broken and when our wallets seem empty, right? when sickness overcomes our bodies and those we love, Our faith often falters and our memory ceases to remember the faithfulness of a God who has seen us through deliverances and provisions and protections and through a thousand dark valleys in our life. And though we pray and ask that God would save the communities that we live in, would bring friends and families to believe in Jesus, that He would bring our own children to faith. How lost is our faith to believe that He can actually do it? Right? But consider, what other proof do we need that He can save sinners, but that He has saved most unlikely candidates like you and like me? Who is beyond the reach of God's grace and salvation if He has saved you? And how many times, perhaps even today, do we come not believing that the power of Jesus' blood could atone for our most awful sins and offenses? That we are too unclean, that we are too backslidden, that we have wandered too far away to return home. But hear the gospel of Christ this morning and believe that for you who are in Christ, the day does not exist when the power of Jesus' blood is unable to cleanse you from your every sin. So Christian, believe this day in Christ and let Jesus marvel at your faith when you should not have any human reason to believe. And if you are here and have not believed in Jesus, Right, you may be here this morning on a whim or by chance. Or perhaps you've been a part of this community at Seven Mile Road and have, have gained great friendships here with us and we've loved that. Your, your reasons for unbelief, many that we have and that we've had, may be many and complex. Right, perhaps you too, like Jesus' hometown of Nazareth, are familiar enough with Jesus. Right? You know him sort of well enough that the Christian faith seems unacceptable. Right? You've received some exposure to it, a dose of it, and are now, in a sense, immune to it. You may feel it simply as unnecessary or that faith requires too much of you to change. Or still yet, that you may feel as though you are too sinful, that you, as well as like many of us, feel too sinful, or that you still have time to decide. Whatever your resistance, whatever your rejection of Jesus, would you consider that here today, just as in Nazareth on that day in a synagogue, is a gracious invitation to you from Jesus Himself to receive Him. And He's calling you out specifically, individually, to have faith in Him. He can open your eyes. He can unblock your ears. Your hearts can be made alive today as the gospel is preached to you today. Will Jesus marvel because of your unbelief? Right? Will you one day, once this short life has passed and you finally realize what you rejected for so long, will you look back and marvel and wonder at yourself for not believing when you could? And so, hear Jesus plead with you. Believe in Christ today, and you shall be saved. This gospel could be yours. And so, as we close for all of us, here is the great leveler of us all. Here's what levels us all and equalizes us all it is the cross of Christ. It is at the cross of Christ that our need to repent and believe is revealed. And it is at the cross of Christ that we are given faith and forgiveness, the redemption of our souls. And so in a moment as we partake in communion and as we worship together, may we again be urged to this by Mark. May we be urged to the great gain of faith in Christ and be graciously warned of the great tragedy of unbelief in Christ this morning. And may our great gain today be faith in Christ. Let's pray.